0: Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. The generosity of listeners like you allows us to offer ministry programming designed to reach people around the world. If you'd like to partner with us in an ongoing way or by giving a one-time gift, please visit our website, newlifecs.net, and click on Give. There you'll find information to give online, by text message, or by mail. Thank you, and enjoy the following message.
1: 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy my beloved child grace mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord I thank God whom I serve as I as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is God's word. You may be seated, seated.
0: When a loved one is about to depart from this world, their friends and family members gather around their bedside to spend every last possible moment with them, straining to hear what their last words will be. And throughout history, many famous men and women have uttered what we call famous last words. Now, there's a stark contrast between those who went to their deathbeds without faith in Christ and those who went to their deathbeds with faith in Christ. Consider, for example, Socrates, the Greek philosopher, whose last words were reportedly these, All of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail, perhaps some divine word. Aldous Huxley, who is a humanist and the author of Brave New World, which many of us read in high school, had this to say on his deathbed. It is a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life and find at the end that one has no more to offer by way of advice than try and be a little kinder. Now contrast those last words with what John Owen said, the 17th century pastor and theologian. I am going to him whom my soul loveth, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the sole ground of all my consolation. Well, friends, today we begin our study of Paul's second letter to Timothy. And if you've studied the book of Acts before, as we did a couple of years ago, you know that at the end of Acts, Paul is under house imprisonment in the city of Rome. However, he's able to receive visitors. He's able to teach and preach the gospel from that house. And we know that eventually, from biblical and historical accounts, he was released. He was released around 62 AD, and that's when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. But it seems from the accounts and the historical information that we have that around 64 AD, he was rearrested and taken back to Rome. But this time, he wasn't placed under house arrest in a home where he could receive visitors, where he could teach and preach the gospel. No, instead, this time, he was placed in chains in a Roman prison. 2 Timothy represents the last words of a man on death row because Paul in prison was awaiting his execution. His letter here was written to his beloved apprentice, his beloved disciple, Timothy, that he considered a son. And as we study 2 Timothy, Paul's focus and Paul's urgency are going to leap off of every single page of this letter as he exhorts Timothy to go on fighting the good fight of faith with or without him. But fighting the good fight of faith would require him to use his spiritual gifts, which directly applies to us in the church today as well. We have been given a great ministry task too, just like Timothy. And thankfully, God has given us all spiritual gifts with which to do that task that he's called us to do. And so, friends, today we're going to learn in this passage that for the glory of God and the good of the church, we must fan our spiritual gifts into flame. Let's look now at the text, starting in verse 1. You'll see that Paul begins his letter by introducing himself as the author, and he does so in the same way that he does most of his letters. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, one thing to note is that Paul is not shy about his apostleship. He takes that title just like Peter and the other 11 disciples did who were with Jesus and followed him around for three years. Paul wasn't a part of that group. In fact, it was many years later that he came to faith in Christ. But Paul, just like them, saw and spoke with Jesus after his resurrection. Paul, just like them, was directly commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle He was not appointed by a human committee. He didn't appoint himself. He was appointed by Christ. And what you see all throughout the New Testament, a majority of which was written by Paul, is that it was his firm conviction to the end that Jesus himself had appointed him to serve as a messenger. That's what apostle means, messenger or sent one to the Gentiles. That was Paul's firm conviction. And he taught and he commanded with that vested authority in mind. So the question is, what is Paul's message? What was he going around preaching? Well, look again at verse 1. Paul's message was the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to remember Paul's death is imminent. He could be executed at any time at Caesar's wish. And yet, here is Paul writing to his beloved co-laborer, Timothy, trusting in the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, the gospel does not offer life to those who believe it. The gospel promises life to those who believe it. It is not an offer, it is a promise. Look on the screen at 1 John chapter 5. John writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So friends, if you have received Jesus by faith, if you have put your whole trust in his life and his death and his resurrection to justify you before God, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about today. You don't have to worry about eternity because the gospel is not an offer of life. The gospel is a promise of life to everyone who receives it by faith. God cannot lie. And so Paul opens the letter by introducing himself and introducing his message once again. And this letter is written to Timothy, his beloved child, as he calls him. Now, many of us know Paul was never married. Paul never had children, and yet he thought of Timothy as his beloved child. Paul, in fact, was a spiritual father to hundreds and hundreds of people all around the world, maybe thousands. And friends, this is a powerful reminder to all of our single men and women in our church. Because I think sometimes in the church, it can feel like if you're not married or if you don't have children, there's really no ministry opportunities for you. You're just kind of forgotten and left out. But we should note that some of the greatest ministry in Christian history was carried out by single men and women. Some of the greatest pastors, evangelists, missionaries to the ends of the earth we're single men and women. And so I want you to understand that as a single man or woman, you have a great opportunity to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to many. In some ways, you have a greater opportunity to, to invest in more people than someone who is married or married with children. And at New Life, that's been our experience. You know, when I think about the leaders in our preschool ministry or our children's ministry, our youth ministry men's and women's ministries are life groups some of the greatest leaders are single men and women Paul was single and he had a great ministry and part of that ministry was to Timothy his beloved child I want to remind you about how they met Paul first on his uh, his primary and first missionary journey when he went out he came to two cities Lystra and Derby and he preached the gospel there And when he returned on his second missionary journey to strengthen those churches, he met a young disciple named Timothy. And for the next 15 years, they traveled together, they ministered together, they planted and strengthened churches along the way together. These men did everything together like a father and his son. And Paul's love for Timothy will be evident in every chapter of this letter to his beloved child. So that's who he's writing to. And he wraps up his introduction with one of his favorite blessings to Timothy. He says, "Look at the text. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord." Every word in that phrase carries significant meaning, certainly for us, but also for Timothy. You see grace is undeserved kindness or favor. It is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is compassion or pity. It is not getting what we do deserve. And peace is tranquility. It's the absence of conflict that is the result of reconciliation. So Paul blesses Timothy with those words, grace, mercy, and peace undeserved favor and kindness, compassion and pity, tranquility as a result of reconciliation. He blesses Timothy with those words. And it's important to remember, Timothy had a tough job on his hands. He was appointed to shepherd a church hundreds of miles away from his beloved mentor, Paul. And he was shepherding a church in a city that Paul described in his letter to 1 Corinthians that the people were wild beasts, So Timothy is pastoring the Church of Wild Beasts. He needed grace and mercy and peace. To do his job, he would need all of those things in abundance, especially if he was never going to see Paul, his beloved mentor, ever again. But friends, the same thing is true for us. No matter what our calling in life is, we need grace, mercy, and peace from God to do the work that he's called us to do. If you have a job in the community somewhere, you know every single day how in need of grace and mercy and peace you are to live in a distinctly Christian manner in a workplace that many times just goes against the grain of what God calls us to do. If you're a student, you know how difficult it can be to be a witness for Christ on the campus where almost everyone else is living in a way that does not honor the Lord, if you're a mom or a dad, you know how hard it can be to do that job day in and day out of loving and serving and discipling your kids. All of us need grace and mercy and peace to do the work that God has called us to do. And that's why Paul praised those things for Timothy and for us. And so now that he wraps up that introduction, we move on to the content of the letter. Look with me at verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul thanked God for Timothy without ceasing. He constantly remembered in his prayers night and day, Timothy, his beloved disciple. And no doubt, part of the reason that he did that was just because he loved him spent so much time with him. But it's also because he knew that Timothy was in way over his head, shepherding this church in a difficult place, just like all of us are in over our heads with our various callings. So he knew Timothy needed grace, mercy, and peace, and he prayed those things for him, but no, no doubt also much more. And, friends, what Paul understood and what we must understand is that although he was not there present with Timothy, God was there present with Timothy. God was there. I think a lot of the time we get really bent out of shape, we get really worried and anxious because we can't do something. I mean, think about how many situations you can't do something about. You're not there physically present or you don't have the money or the resources to do something about it, you can't do anything, but we can always pray. And that's great because God can always do something. God is all-powerful, and he's present everywhere. So even when we can't do something, we can always pray, and we can ask the Lord, who is all-powerful and all-present, to do something. And so, friends, if we don't pray often, if we don't pray regularly for these situations that are outside of our control, we don't have a time problem. We don't have a discipline problem. We have a faith problem. We simply don't believe that God will hear us and answer us when we pray to him. But Paul understood that God is all-powerful and all-present, and so he prayed all the time. And the thing that prompted him to pray, if you look at verse 4, is that he remembered Timothy's tears. And the question is, why was Timothy so upset when Paul left him in Ephesus to pastor this church? Well, first, as we've already said, Timothy loved Paul. I mean, I just want you to imagine for a minute, if you spent almost every day with someone for 15 years, I've been married almost 15 years, And so I know what that's like to spend almost every day with someone. That was Timothy and Paul's relationship. Imagine if you had nearly died more than once with this person. Imagine if you had traveled far and wide, planting churches and strengthening them, experiencing the joy of people coming to faith in Christ and growing, and experiencing the pain and heartache of people turning away from Christ, rejecting the gospel or backsliding. Imagine if you would experience all of those things together. That was Paul and Timothy. They had a great love for one another. And so no doubt part of the reason that Timothy cried when Paul left was just that he loved him. But secondly, Timothy was upset because he simply believed he wasn't adequate for the ministry. He didn't think he could do it. I want you to remember Timothy was relatively young. If you recall back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul exhorts Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one look down on you because you're young, as some translations say. At this point, Timothy was probably in his mid-30s. I'm in my mid-30s, and I was reflecting on this passage. You know, when I was in college, I knew everything. Everything. I knew everything about the Bible, I knew everything about marriage and how you should act as a married person. I knew everything about raising children, absolutely everything. Now, some 15 to 20 years later, after being a husband and a dad and a pastor, I can confidently affirm that I know absolutely nothing about any of those things. God bless my wife, my children, and all of you for your long-suffering patience with me. So Timothy was relatively young, but secondly, he thought he was inadequate because he was prone to illness. Again, remembering back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul referred to Timothy's frequent ailments. He was sick a lot. And maybe that's just because he had a weak constitution and he just kind of caught everything that was going around. Or maybe, as it seems to indicate, he got sick because he was drinking unfiltered water rather than some wine with his meals. We don't know, but, but whatever the reason was, Timothy was sick a lot, and you know how hard it is to do what you've been called to do as an employee, as a mom or a dad, a family member, when you're not feeling well. And Timothy was sick all the time. And then third and finally, Timothy was timid by temperament. He felt inadequate because he was timid by temperament. He seems to have been faint-hearted, And so Paul continually encourages him to fight the good fight of faith, to see himself as a soldier in combat with work to do, to not shrink back from godly confrontation. So Paul prays for Timothy when he remembers his tears, and Timothy cried because he loved Paul and because he felt inadequate for ministry. He simply felt too young, too unhealthy, and too timid to do the work that God had called him to do. And friends, I think a lot of us can relate to those feelings. When we think about what God has called us to do, I think we experience some of those same feelings at least some of the time. You may not consider yourself too young, but maybe you feel you're too inexperienced to make a difference in the kingdom of God. You may not be sick all the time, But certainly all of us have had days where we feel too unhealthy physically, emotionally, mentally to engage and to do the work that God has called us to do. And we may not be timid, but I think every one of us has come to the place where we felt, God, why did you put me here? Why did you put me in charge of this? Why did you give me all of this responsibility? I'm not sufficient for these things. But we learn in Scripture that's actually a really great place to be. That's where the Apostle Paul was. He had what he described as a thorn in his flesh. And I want you to look at what he writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.'" Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, feeling weak and inadequate is actually a really great place to be as a Christian. Because when we feel strong, we don't lean on the Lord, on his grace and on his power for our life and for our ministry. But when we feel weak, when we feel inadequate, when we feel like we simply can't do what he's called us to do, that's when we press into the Lord through prayer. That's when we go to his word for wisdom and guidance. That's when we look to the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he's called us to do. When we're weak, then we're actually strong. But Timothy's tears weren't the only thing that Paul remembered when he prayed for him. You look at the text and you see that he also remembered his sincere faith. That is a faith without hypocrisy, just like Paul's. And what's amazing about this is that Paul says that his sincere faith first lived in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice. What seems to have happened is that when Paul first went to Lystra and Derby and preached the gospel, Lois and Eunice, these two Jewish women, they came to faith in Christ. And then sometime in between that first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, when Paul came back and met Timothy, Timothy came to faith in Christ. And it seems that Paul is saying he came to faith in Christ through the witness and through the example of his grandmother and his mother. Now, what an encouragement to Christian parents and grandparents that our teaching and our example, as imperfect as they are, can lead our children to faith in Christ. Now, if you're a parent, especially if you're a mom, I know how fruitless it can all seem on certain days. Like you're just living out the meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes day after day. You think... I'll lead a sweet devotional with the kids over breakfast. And then your son decides to wear his cereal bowl as a hat. Or you think, you know, before bed tonight, we'll have a time of family worship together. And every time your son tries to climb on the couch, your daughter plays whack-a-mole with his head. She thinks it's hilarious. Right? I know how fruitless it can all seem. And so I want to encourage you, I want to remind you, don't give up. But pray for your children every single day. Look for every opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel into their lives. I don't want you to underestimate the power of a consistent example and consistent teaching and consistent discipline in their lives, especially the discipline of confessing and repenting of your own sins before them. You see, I think sometimes the message that kids hear in our homes is that they really need Jesus. Their sin is evident they really need Jesus. What they need to hear and see from us is that mom and dad are sinners as well. And it's not like they don't know that. We sin against them so many times in a given day or week. Every one of those times is an opportunity to say, I sinned against you. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? This is evidence that I need a Savior too. It's not just you. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. Don't underestimate the power of consistently doing that. I mean, every parent's dream, every Christian parent's dream anyway, is to see sincere faith formed in their children. And thankfully for Lois and Eunice, they got to see that in Timothy. Timothy. And so with that encouragement, Paul moves on to his first challenge to Timothy. Look with me at verse 6. Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When Paul remembered Timothy's tears and his sincere faith, Paul helped Timothy to remember. He reminded him to fan into flame the gift of God, which he received when Paul laid his hands on him. Now, the laying on of hands seems to be referring to Timothy's ordination. In other words, what happened when he was recognized as an elder or as a pastor at the church of Ephesus. The laying on of hands symbolizes vested authority. It's recognized authority, recognizing new authority in the church. And when he refers to Timothy's gift, he's likely talking about his spiritual gift or gifts that every single Christian receives from the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in Christ. And those gifts are given to us to build up the body of Christ. Timothy's gift, from what we read in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, seems to be that of shepherd-teacher. He was gifted to pastor the church. He was gifted to pastor the church, especially through his teaching and his preaching. Paul refers to that in Ephesians 4. But whatever Timothy's gift, he is to fan it into flame. That's the challenge. That's the command. Fan that gift into flame. Now, I know many of you will be shocked, but I'm not exactly the most outdoorsy guy. I was raised in Plano, which is like the opposite of the outdoors, so if you need a tough, knowledgeable guide to lead you on a perilous expedition to Stonebriar Mall on Black Friday, <laughs> I'm your guy. If you need someone to lead you safely into and out of the woods, you need to call Bear Grills or Drew DeCure or Josh Allen, somebody who knows something about the outdoors. But God has a great sense of humor, and one of my boys joined Cub Scouts. So we've been camping out together, and we have several more campouts planned for this year. Our first campout was on a really cold night, and we had to build a fire out there. But the wood was fairly wet, and so the fire kept dying out. And the only way for us to keep it going was to use our paper dinner plates and continually fan it to continually fan it into flame, to keep exposing it to more and more oxygen so that the flames would rise higher and higher and actually keep the people around the fire warm. Well, friends, it's the same deal with spiritual gifts. You have to fan them into flame. You see, as I mentioned, when we first come to faith in Christ, all of us are given one or more spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 on the screen. Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now look at Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what we see in these passages is that those smoldering embers, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the basis for a hot fire, are present in every single Christian. They're all, they're there in every one of us. We all have them. But friends, unless we fan them into flame, the flames are never going to burn high enough and hot enough to benefit those around us in the church, which is exactly the purpose of the spiritual gifts. You see, we have to expose our spiritual gifts to the oxygen of ministry opportunities in the local church. That's how we fan them into flame. We expose them to the oxygen of ministry opportunities in the local church. And that starts with joining a local church. It starts with saying, I'm going to commit myself and my spiritual gift to these real people. I'm not merely going to attend, even attend regularly, I'm going to commit, I'm going to join, and I'm going to use my gifts to build them up, just as they will use their gifts to build me up. And I think it's true that some of us have been afraid to commit. We've been afraid to put ourselves out there to use our spiritual gifts to benefit others. And that's why Paul addresses that fear in verse 7. Look at what he says. He says, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Well, friends, there was plenty to be afraid of for Timothy. I mean, he had Christians in his church who were questioning his credentials, his age, his experience. He had false teachers coming to his church who were regularly trying to draw disciples away after themselves. And then he lived in a society that was ruled not by a Christian government, not even by a neutral government, but by a pagan government that was bent on destroying Christianity. And so for Timothy, there was plenty to be afraid of. He probably had a lot more to be afraid of than we do today. But he didn't need to be afraid. And he didn't need to be afraid because God did not give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-control. So friends, we don't have to be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid because God is all-powerful. And his power is working through us at all times as we pray and as we proclaim the gospel. We don't have to be afraid because God is love. And His love is working through us as we seek to serve not just our family members and friends, but as Jesus commanded us, even our enemies, even those who hate and persecute us. And we don't have to be afraid because God has set us free from slavery to sin. No longer are we slaves to sin. We have been given a spirit of self control. That means, as a Christian, you no longer have to submit to slavery to lust or greed or pride or gluttony or anything else. You and I have been set free because we've been given a spirit of self control. So, for all those reasons and many more, Timothy didn't have to be afraid, and we don't have to be afraid. And friends, we could hardly close with more encouraging words today because I think it's true that most of us see ourselves in the same way that Timothy saw himself, that we're just too inexperienced. We are too unhealthy, too timid to do the work that God has called us to do. But Paul reminded Timothy of the truth. He was a man of sincere faith whom God had saved. And whom God had given everything that he needed grace and mercy and peace and the requisite spiritual gifts to do exactly what God had called him to do. All that Timothy needed to do is fan those spiritual gifts into flame by exposing them to the oxygen of ministry opportunities in the local church. And so, friends, here we are at the outset of a new year and the outset of a new semester. And there's no better time to consider our glorious salvation and the spiritual gifts that God has given to each one of us at conversion. See, our community and this world are in desperate need of us to preserve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know this good news that we know. They need to know the message of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And our church needs us to faithfully exercise our spiritual gifts to build one another up in Christ until we all reach maturity together. So the only question for us today is, will you do it? Will you answer the call to use your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ? For the glory of God and the good of the church We must fan our spiritual gifts into flame. Let's pray. Father, we confess our inadequacy before you. It's not just that we feel inadequate for the work that you've called us to do, but there's a very real sense in which we are inadequate. And that's why we are in desperate need of your grace and your mercy and peace. That's why we were in desperate need of spiritual gifts so that we would be empowered to do what you've called us to do. And so, Father, I I begin by praying for every Christian here today. I pray for our members. As I look out today in the congregation I see so many faces of men and women who have poured themselves out in service and I pray that their example would spur all of us on to do the same to love and serve and build up others by using our spiritual gifts And I know there are other Christians here who are not doing that. Some are members and some are not yet members here at New Life. I pray for them as well. That they would make the decision to commit and to invest because they need us and we need them. And I pray for those who gathered with us today who are not yet Christians. That the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus would seem beautiful to them today and necessary for them today because they are separated from you in their sin. And so we pray that they would receive Christ by faith. God, we are so excited to learn from this wonderful letter. We're so glad that you inspired Paul to write it. And we're so glad that in your divine providence, you knew this was not just for Timothy, but for us as well. And we pray that we would hear it and receive it and appropriate its truth into our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.